You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. I've shared this story before, um, but it's pretty remarkable. St. Augustine, in his confessions, he writes about his earlier years. I love the honesty of Augustine, and he talks about his earlier years before he was renewed by the gospel and transformed. His life was marked by promiscuity, drunkenness, theft, um, many, like many of us, he was actually raised in a religious home. His mother was quite devout and prayed for him. But despite this sort of religious upbringing, he ended up going down his own path in his younger years, down the path that he thought was the most authentic to himself. And he recalls a prayer that he often prayed to God. He said, I often prayed to thee, Lord, give me chastity and self-control, but just not yet. And he gets honest and admits why he would actually pray this prayer. He said, for I was afraid that you would answer my prayer at once and cure me too soon of my disease of lust, which I wish to have satisfied rather than extinguished. I was afraid you would do it. I was torn. I, I wanted you to change me and heal me, kind of. But I was afraid that you actually would. I was afraid of what I would become if I trusted you with my everything. There's a story that's been passed down through history that under the medieval reign of Charles the Great, a large number of soldiers were baptized into the church. Before uh, soldiers were allowed to join the Crusades, which is a very dark, low moment in Christian history, by the way, um, they were all required to be baptized. Sounds like a great idea. Let's get all these bloodthirsty people, but make sure they're baptized first so they do it in Jesus's 
name. Anyhow, so they end up going and getting baptized sort of assembly line, like all just sort of in a line going down in the water and back up. But it said that some of the soldiers, as they went down in the water, they held their hand out with the sword out of the water, and it represented that I'm committing myself to Jesus except the sword and how I wield it. This year, yeah, this is, this is yours, God. This, this is mine. And if we're to get honest, I think the same is often true of us. We hold out our passions. This year is yours, Lord. Passions are mine, though. Or our dreams, or our money, or our sexuality, or our relationships, or our time, or our control, or our emotions. We say, this is yours, this is mine. But as C.S. Lewis put it, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time, or so much of your money, and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. This is the sort of like straight to the point uh, way that Paul opens up this next portion of Colossians where he's now beginning to apply all of the theology, the rich theology that he's been expressing earlier in the book of Colossians. And he says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So here's how I want to apply all that I've mentioned. Put to death what is earthly in you. Now, I think about the critique that we often hear today. Maybe you've heard it as well. Christianity is so repressive. Christianity is so repressive. We are humans, and we have natural desires. We have natural urges as people and you know Christians are always seeking to repress that stuff to like stuff it down and to ignore it it's just not healthy it's just not right it's not natural and in one way I do understand why this misconception exists because as probably many of us know a lot of religion today is really centered around sin management it really is about stuffing down urges and desires But you see, the vision that we see here of living into our true identity is not about repressing our natural desires. It's not about repressing our human impulses. It's worse. It's about letting them die. You see, the Christian message is nothing less than death and resurrection. Not just Christ's death and resurrection, but ours with him dying completely to our natural self so that we can be raised into something infinitely better than ever before. But we can't have both. We simply can't have both. And what Paul is rightly addressing here is that we are often trying to hang on to both the old and the new us in Jesus Christ, the old ways of living, thinking that we can somehow handle both the old and the new sort of unwilling to to let what has been crucified with Jesus fully die. Well, you know, if I just try really hard, I can get these behaviors under control. 
I'm just going to take this thing serious. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cut back on things. They've gotten a little bit out of hand, so I'm going to cut it back. I'm going to rein it in. I think we're going to be okay. If I just try a little bit harder, I think we can figure out this arrangement. This is what the self-made religion that Paul refers to earlier in Colossians 2 was all about. See, they knew enough about God to really be dangerous to themselves and others. They, 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 they did recognize the threat of sin. They saw sin as a problem and how selfishness and, and sin are devastating to us and others and how sin cannot be given control of our lives. They understood that, but the people then sought to master their earthly uh, you know, urges and their behaviors and put them in check. In fact, Paul summarizes their approach to religion like this in Colossians 2. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Does it sound familiar? It was a faith marked by, nope, nope, mm, nope, nope, not, not either. Nope, kind of sounds like our parenting. Nope, just, just stop, just stop, stop. It was about prohibition. No new vision, uh, no, no positive redirection, just don't do it, just stop it, goodness. And if we've learned anything from our own history in America, Prohibition does not bridle desires. Prohibition does not change the hearts and lives of individuals. In fact, it does the very opposite. Prohibition provokes. It rouses desires. The 18th Amendment, which was prohibition of alcohol, was a huge failed attempt at legislating morality. And what it did was statistically, it resulted not in a decrease in alcohol consumption, but an increase. People started drinking more. Don't tell me I can't do it. So these approaches to trying to manage change were like strapping on this giant religious chastity belt. Nothing's getting through this. I'm gonna conquer my temptations. I'm gonna sin less by locking things up. I'm gonna put on more restrictions. I'm gonna put on more religious obligations. I'm gonna pile on the guilt. I'm gonna pile on the shame. I'm gonna pile on all the you know, pseudo-Christian self-help jargon. But what this approach failed to do was change the will. It failed to change the heart. It failed to change the desires of individuals. And it will always fail to change us in these ways. And in some ways, again, it did the very opposite. It roused them. It, it made them hungrier. It made them more dangerous than ever before. So what on earth do we do? Because we all have desires and we're all human. What do we do? Well, Paul begins with this first point. We've got to put off the old. Put off the old. Look with me again in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. One commentator named N.T. Wright uh, put it this way. The old taboos, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. It put the wild animals of lust and hatred into cages, and there they remained alive and dangerous and a constant threat to their captor. So Paul's solution is more drastic. You've got to put them to death. You don't cage sin. You've got to kill it. Now, if this seems wild, 
If you're like, whoa, 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 you're coming off strong there already. Gosh, it's like 9.30, you're talking about killing things. If this sounds drastic, it's because you have underestimated the threat of sin. We tend to think of sin as sort of bad, naughty things that we shouldn't do. Sometimes we understand why. You're like, yeah, I can get it. I get it. Sometimes we have no idea why. I'm just like, I don't know. Bible says, I don't get it, but yeah, I mean, whatever. We just got to do it. So we trivialize it. We, we, we tiptoe around it. We make excuses for sins. We downplay it. It was just a white lie. It was not a big, big, big deal. We downplay certain sins. But when the Bible talks about sin, it is much more than just bad, naughty things that we ought not do. Fleming Rutledge put it this way. Sin is not so much a collection of individual misdeeds as it is an active, malevolent agency bent upon despoiling, imprisonment, and death, the utter undoing of God's purposes. What is sin doing? It's trying to drag you down. This is why Paul concludes this initial list of sins by saying and summarizing it as this is idolatry. In other words, this is worship and devotion stuff. So think about this. When you sleep with someone who is not your spouse, or when you give in to lust and pornography, or when you are fantasizing about someone that you shouldn't, you are not just doing naughty taboo things. You are bowing at an altar. You are at the altar of pleasure. You are at the altar of the human body. As Paul would describe it elsewhere, you are trading the image of the immortal God for a cheap replacement imitation. The late David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, by the way, said in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will always need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen, and I know that we're a smart church here, so worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And he says, everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what we worship. See, these, again, aren't just bad things that we shouldn't do. These are things that seek to control us, that ultimately want us to bow before them, to bow the knee, and to worship at their altar. In fact, this is highlighted for us in the contrast that Paul gives us in verse 15 when he says, let the peace of Christ, what? Rule in your hearts. This is not just about what we do in our own private lives. This is about what is ruling us, what is controlling us. And so Paul's assumption here is that you and I are being ruled by something. It's either the peace of Christ or it's earthly desires. Either the new, true self being led by the Holy Spirit into flourishing and newness or the old, false self 
constantly dragging you back into the grave. For the Christian, we can no longer say, you know, I was just being controlled by my emotions or I was being controlled by my urges. No, Paul would say elsewhere, it's the love of Christ that controls me now. There's a new controlling force in my life. As we see here, the new brings freedom, joy, harmony, inner peace, celebration, a life of praise and singing, a life of enjoying community and tight-knit relationships within the body of Christ. And the old brings bondage, rage, disunity, insecurity, and contention. What do you desire? Like legitimately, what do you want for your life? And what we see here is that there is no such thing as sin in a vacuum. There is no such thing as like, well, these are my own personal sins. They're not affecting anyone. It always will bleed into your relationships. No one is safe. And so when the Bible tells us to put these things to death, hear me clearly. It is not God seeking to take away your freedom. This is God passionately seeking to liberate you to release you so that you can live truly human. But God knows that we will never ever be truly free from the things that we're unwilling to cut off, from the things that we are unwilling to part ways from. I like the way that the Old English, the King James Version translate this passage. It says, mortify therefore what is earthly in you, mortify. And it helps us understand what Paul's getting at here. He is not saying, and you need to hear me clearly on this, he's not saying inflict physical harm upon yourself. Inflict pain on yourself in a way that that subdues your urges. That's not what Paul is saying. And it's actually interesting because that is the accusation. Christians are seeking to harm people. That's a harmful religion. That's a harmful teaching. That's not what's being said here. The word here, mortify, means to deprive something of power, to cut off its source of strength, which is very interesting because we do live in a generation where we've been told you are entitled to whatever you desire, and to be told no feels like someone is inflicting pain upon us. You have wounded me. They're not the same. In fact, Jesus would put it this way, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Self-denial is not regressive. Self-denial is liberating. Self-denial is not denying your true self. Self-denial is denying your false self so that your true self can live, so that you can flourish in obedience to God. You guys still with me? Okay. And so Paul names these areas that we must deny. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual act that is not within the union of marriage between one man and one woman. It's intimate, bodily, heart connections without the necessary commitment of covenant to support it, which then creates insecurity. Someone's regretting bringing their child into service right now. Just kidding. Kids are welcome in this conversation as well. Um which creates insecurity and pain in the end. Put away sexual immorality, as well as impurity, which is 
tainted thoughts and motives. It's when we trivialize or we objectify the human body. And passion, which means inordinate desires, allowing your feelings or your physical urges to lead you. Oh, so-and-so, they're only thinking with their fill-in-the-blank. Evil desire, which means dwelling on lustful or even sexually deviant thoughts, entertaining those dark rabbit trails of the mind. Covetousness, which is interesting in this context because you wouldn't think like covetousness would fit, but it actually fits here because it means being jealous of someone else's spouse or being jealous of someone else's body or being jealous of someone else's sex life. It's a unique type of greed that thinks that we are entitled to what someone else has, including their body. So I read some research from Lawrence Feiner that found that 95% of American adults will engage in sex outside of marriage over the course of their lifetime, 95% of adults in America. Some more research, a more recent research from Pew found that 83% of religiously unaffiliated people believe that casual sex is acceptable and a good thing. 83% of religiously unaffiliated people. And then I read a stat that really stood out to me. According to Pew, 50% of adults in America who identify as Christians say that casual sex between consenting adults is always or sometimes acceptable which obviously is the relevant stat to us because, listen, Paul is not speaking to the world. He's not saying, Greco-Roman universe, hear me. He's not legislating change in the Roman Empire. He is speaking to the church. And so just in case we were to think, it's not a big deal. Like, everyone is doing it, including 50% of Christians. In case we are tempted to think, you know what, what I do with my body is my business. It is not hurting anyone else. That is like some outdated code of morality that is not relevant for our current moment. Paul immediately says, immediately says in verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. This isn't trivial. This is certainly not trivial to God. The one to whom our body belongs does not consent. No matter what the cultural trends say, no matter what evangelical trends say, God will never change his mind about how God feels about sin and the destructive nature of sin. And God will always come against that which comes against his vision for human flourishing. God will punish unrepentant sin. Now, notice something. Paul doesn't stop here. Uh, I was tempted to break up this because there's just like too much to cover into one sermon. But I had to purposely keep going because Paul keeps going. And I want to point out something that we may miss here, but it's obvious right in front of us that the following list of vices that I'm going to read in just a moment, including anger and slander, are actually found in the very same paragraph as the previous train of thought with all these previous sexual sins. 
which what that should do for us is it levels the playing field and it humbles every single one of us to see our deep shared need for God's grace and transformation. These are not just like, oh, I, I, I hope so-and-so's listening. This is that moment where I'm like, okay, I've gotta listen. Look at me in verses seven through nine. In these, you too once walked. Don't pretend you didn't, you did. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So anger, what is anger? Anger is that constant smoldering of irritation below the surface. Mm, Just brewing. Wrath, which is when that anger spills out into our actions, not just aggressively, but passive aggressively. We have mastered the art of being passive aggressive, right? Uh, Amen. We're just like, I'll punish you with my silence. Malice, which means spitefulness, being motivated by hatred, bitterness, and resentment. Those, you know, when you're quiet in your bedroom or in your shower and you begin to ruminate on those, oh man, if I could get back at that. Slander, which means attacking someone's character, it means hurting someone's reputation. You may never lay your hand on someone, but you can murder someone's reputation. Obscene talk, which is just harmful speech, And then obviously lying, which is living dishonestly with others. Paul says, these are the characteristics of the old you. They used to define you. Don't act like they didn't. They did. But if you are in Christ through faith, this is no longer who you are. And Paul Paul is giving this like helpful illustration of clothing. And what he's essentially saying is these patterns, these behaviors, these characteristics are now ill-fitting for you. Now, some of my family members have been trying to pressure me into wearing looser, baggier fitting clothes. They told me I was stuck in an era, so I got really mad and I cursed them out. (laughs) Just kidding. And so, I'm telling you the truth right now. I've tried. I've tried. I I went to the store, I look look in the mirror, and I'm I'm just like, I, I, uh, I I can't do it right now. I lived through the 90s. I had my Jinkos. I had my pipelines. You could fit a car tire up one pant leg and with the clothes I used to wear. I can't go back there. I can't. That's in the past. <laughs> this is what Paul is trying to get us to feel about the old clothes, the grave clothes. These things used to fit you really well because you were spiritually dead. These were characteristics that hugged the form of your body, so to speak, perfectly because you were dead in your sin, but you've changed. You've changed. That's no longer who you you are. You've been made alive by the Spirit. These things no longer fit the new, forgiven, revived you. So here's the deal. You've got to put that off. You've got to leave that in the past. Stop returning to that era in your life. Instead, Number two, put on the new. Put on the new. Look at me in verses nine through 11. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the, in the knowledge after the image of its creator, 
Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul is saying, live according to the new identity, the new identity that is not based on race, Jew or Gentile, religious performance, circumcised, uncircumcised, your education, that's what's being meant here by barbarians, were those known who... They were those who were like uneducated hill people. And then the barbarians had slaves called the Scythians that were even less educated. This is not based on your race, your religious performance, your education, or your social status. Slave or free, employee, employer, business owner, or blue-collar worker. But the identity that is yours in Jesus and now reflects his love and character. This is who you are. In the early church, there was a practice that when people were to get baptized, they would go change their clothes and they would come back with white robes. And the idea was that you were being baptized in the clothes that now best represent who you are, the righteousness that now marks your life through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is probably a tradition that many of us have seen in other church traditions or maybe other parts of the world. And it it represents the, the removal of our grave clothes. That old me... It's buried with Christ. I I don't want to bring that back. And now I'm adorning myself in the new robes of righteousness that I'm clothed in, in Jesus Christ. This is the imagery that Paul is invoking here. Yes, put off the old, that's important, but it doesn't end there. You put off the old so that you can live into and put on the new you. Adorn yourself with the purity and the beauty that is now yours in Jesus Christ. Not so that you can make yourself holy. Paul is not saying if you're compassionate and you're kind and you forgive and you love people, maybe one day God will consider you holy. No, we could never do that. Paul's saying because through your union with Jesus Christ, he has already made you holy. Can I get an amen? At the cross. What happened at the cross? Why is the cross so important to this conversation? At the cross, Jesus took on our defilement. Jesus took on all of our impurity, the shame, the guilt, the wrath. Jesus was crucified, naked, and despised in the spit, in the blood, in the excrement. And in exchange, he gave to us all of his purity, all of his forgiveness, removing the shame and the defilement, and then clothing us in his righteousness and holy. This is the exchange that the gospel welcomes us into. He gives to us grace in the place of disgrace. He gives to us honor in the place of shame. He gives to us beauty in the place of brokenness. This is the offer of the gospel. And Paul says, for goodness sake, take it up and put it on by faith. Put it on. Now, it's interesting, this clothing theme runs all throughout the Bible. This is not just unique to Paul. In fact, if we go rewind all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we read that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, their immediate response was to clothe themselves. And it says that they fashioned for themselves clothes made out of the fig leaves. But what we realized very quickly, and what they realized quickly was these these. These clothes are what would really represent 
man-made religion, they were not sufficient to remove their sin and to cover their shame. It wasn't capable of that. And so what does God do? He seeks them out. He finds them in their hiding. He, by grace, calls them out of hiding into his presence. He removes the fig leaves and he replaces it with animal skins. He gives them something better. And it's unique. It's not necessarily explicitly mentioned. But animal skins uh, implies that there was a sacrifice made. Something better that comes through death. Zechariah chapter 3 in the prophets, Joshua the high priest is standing in the courtroom of heaven and he's in these defiled garments, priestly vestments, and they're dirty and they're ragged. And there's Satan accusing him. Look at him. This is your representative? God, this is your priest? Look at how dirty he is. And it says the angel of the Lord commands that his dirty clothes be removed and that they're replaced with clean linens and a clean turban on his head. And he says, see, I have removed your iniquity. I've cleansed you. The book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the lamb is the great choir of heaven is singing so loud that it's shaking the foundations of heaven. Imagine that. And they sing these words, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted or it was graced to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Clothing, 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 clothing. Um, I've been to a wedding, I kid you not, where I overheard someone say, the bride's wearing white. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. And if you don't know what that means, it means um, I know where they've been. They should not be wearing anything that represents purity. But Paul says, no matter who you are, no matter how you've lived before, if you are in Christ, the church, Jesus' bride, we belong in nothing less than the bright white linens of purity. Regardless of your history, regardless of your sins, regardless of your struggles, regardless of your temptations, regardless of your sexuality, regardless of the taunts of the enemy, regardless of those who point out your flaws, we are actually commanded, commanded to wear what is now rightfully ours. And every day, every single day, as you get dressed every day, at least I hope, I hope that COVID pattern has now been broken in your life. Like you put, take off your pajamas, you put on your clothes, so must you daily put off the old and put on the new Christ-like character and wear it, listen, wear it with confidence. Wear it with confidence. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, this is who you are. Holy, beloved, put on compassionate hearts. I love the way that Ronald Rollheiser described compassion as it's letting your sun shine on those you like and those you dislike. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience 
not that we would ever have to do this in our church, but bearing with one another. And again, this would never happen in reality, but if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, why? Because the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive, seems pretty straightforward. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Amen. You see, this isn't about repressing desires. If you're walking away thinking Christians repress desires, you are not listening to me. This is not about repressing desires. This is about redirecting our hearts toward a better vision of life. And I'm promising you right now, I'm staking my life on this message that this life is going to be far more fulfilling than a life of gratifying our own personal urges. This life described here is gonna be far more satisfying than living for ourselves. It's a life marked by love and kindness and giving and forgiving. Imagine a world that looked like this. let's, Let's come in here. Let's imagine a church that looks like this. What Paul's doing here in chapter three is really important. Because in order to do away with the old, you've got to embrace and practice the new. It's it's what one theologian called the expulsive power of a new affection. He described it like this. Thomas uh, Chalmers said, we only cease to be the slave of one appetite because another taste has brought it into subordination. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. So the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Come on, that is so good. They don't say it like they used to say it. We will constantly find ourselves falling back into the old. And I'm betting that there are a lot of people that find themselves in that that place. You just keep being pulled back into the old. We will keep being pulled back until we are captivated by the worth and the value of something new. Something better, something more beautiful. And this list of virtues isn't random. I've made this mistake, thinking that Paul is sort of just pivoting into a new direction here. This is not an unrelated list of virtues after a long unrelated list of vices. These are the direct replacements. New practices in the places of the old. Holiness in the place of impurity. Selfless love in the place of selfish lust. Compassion in the place of contentiousness. Kindness in the place of slander. Humility in the place of entitlement, forgiveness in the place of malice, peace in the place of division, gratitude in the place of greed. And as we'll see later in this passage, speaking and singing God's word and praise in the place of lies, in the place of obscene talk, worshiping the living God in the place of idolatry. Paul is saying, here are your replacements. Here are the new. Allow these to be the expulsive power of your heart. Let me conclude with this. Get a vision for the transformed life that is already yours. 
dwell upon what these words are saying here. Dwell upon what is already available to you through the Holy Spirit. Fill your imagination with living a self-sacrificial, committed, caring, loving, giving, singing life dream so big. Dream such a giant dream that over time you will lose your appetite for anything less. So that you'll no longer be willing to settle for anything less than the character and the holiness that now fits the redeemed life. And the way that we get this vision and the way that we stir these affections is actually through worship. It's by getting our eyes on Jesus, all that he is, all that Jesus has done for us, all that Jesus is continuing to do for us. A young leader in his 20s from the past named Robert Murray McShane said this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and, such, and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners. Even the chief live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose or rest, relax, take a deep breath in his almighty arms. This is how Paul concludes this portion of putting off the old and putting on the new. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever it is, you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May it be true among us. Amen. Father, we thank you.